this is the zenith of resilience that you want to aspire to, where you are essentially bulletproof to whatever life throws at you. Guys raced into burning helicopters with detonating explosive charges and ammunition and pulled people out of the wreck. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis are two veterans of the Special Air Service Regiment. The ex-SAS officers swap their rifles for MBAs and co-run Metal Global, a premium corporate advisory and management consulting firm that provide proven and practical solutions to uncommon problems. They are experts in crisis management, something the world really needs right now. They also co-host the Unforgiving 60 podcast, now in its second season. Ben and Tim have been guests on this podcast before. In Season 3's episode, SAS Leadership with Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, we talked about their backgrounds, what drew them to military service, and discussed military leadership in the context of the mission involving the MV Pong Su. I distinctly remember thinking, I wish I didn't know them quite as well because I knew each of their wives, I knew all of their kids, and I remember thinking, if there is a 50 caliber machine gun on that vessel and it has a, a shot at that helicopter, then not all of us will be coming home. And it was a quite a, a sort of moving moment. Right at the 11th hour, so just before we were about to launch, we had a call with the Prime Minister who said, go ahead and seize the ship. They came back on the podcast to share with me some new anecdotes and lessons of leadership and to reflect on the tragic helicopter crash on 12 June, 1996. I'm Alex Lloyd, and today I'm speaking with two previous guests of Life on the Line to get more of their insight and wisdom about leadership. First, Ben Pronk, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Alex. And also a warm welcome back to Tim Curtis. Great to be with you again, Alex. First, guys, I wanted to have a brief catch-up. Last time we spoke, we covered your experiences in regards to seizing the North Korean drug ship, the MV Pong Su, and lessons of leadership pulled from that incident. Since then, you've reached new heights of notoriety thanks to senior investigative journalist Richard Baker. <laughs> it has actually been pretty interesting riding on the coattails of, of an actual proper podcaster, as, as we do with you and more recently with Richard. But The Last Voyage of the Pong Su, Richard's latest series, was an amazing series in general and, yeah, really great to be a part of it. And one that we didn't program, we just accidentally collided into Richard and actually he wasn't going to interview us right at the start. He thought... With good reason. <laughs> he'd listened to our material and realised... <laughs> he was just going to pinch my audio, but I thought, oh, there's something here. They might want to actually speak with him directly. Oh, uh, yeah. No, it was a great introduction. And once we had an initial conversation... I think we both thought there's something meaningful 
that comes out of this. And I think that it made us realise, just reflecting on the interview with Richard, how we were just one little piece in a really big puzzle. And we talked on the interview about how, you know, there was three services involved in the army. There was a range of different corps. It was interdepartmental and interagency, but we hadn't actually looked over under the Pong Su and thought about what had happened in their lives and what that fantastic series has done has probably crystallised in my brain our simple view of the problem, Ben. I think I've said before on our podcast, I've developed a bit of a heuristic as I've grown older that if I've got a very firm black and white opinion about something, then it's a sign that I don't know enough about it. I reckon this is a good case. I mean, you cannot get a better bad guy than a North Korean drug vessel. I mean, clearly they're bad people doing this. But of course, when you peel back the layers and actually look at it, that's not necessarily the case. Their worldview is very different. Even the hardline sort of individuals who were driving this, who we now believe are are North Korean special operations, if you really look at it, are they that much different from Australian special operators as individuals wanting to do something for their country? So I thought that aspect of it really, I guess, exploring the complexity, we use that word very deliberately, but just the mess surrounding all of this and the ambiguity and the lack of black and white binary sort of circumstances, I thought that was a fantastic component of that series. It certainly put some faces to the other parties involved because it was a big international news story at the time it unfolded. But as you both alluded to, Richard's podcast provided that depth of new sources, new commentary, new insight to all the other cogs in the machine. You've been a pivotal cog, but there were others before and after. And like you say, just actually understanding more their side of it. And that made it a far more dynamic, interesting story. And of course, that's why he did do his in-depth series on it. So it was uh, really just enjoyable for me as an audience member to have got that first insight from you guys and then get that much deeper, bigger picture from Richard's podcast. And I think not leaving that topic of complexity, what I hope we were able to provide in some small um, amount is that the military planning, and in hindsight, it actually turned out to go pretty well, pretty much by the numbers, but it was a constant process of adaptation and, and in many ways muddling through. You know, there was a lot of ambiguity about the target, about the potential threat. There was certainly a lot of suboptimal components in terms of our force package and some of the equipment and assets. The boats and, and helicopters weren't the ones that we would have had by preference. And so from an external point of view, maybe it looks like this precise military operation, but there was a lot of, as I said before, muddling through and adaptation and improvisation that went through to, to make it. So hopefully our contribution helped shine a light on the fact that these things aren't perfect. There is mess in all of this. And the point that we love to make about leadership in general is that it often feels like you're not in control or things aren't going really crisply and perfectly like they seem to in the movies. But that's probably about right. It's probably just the sort of nature of of leading in a complex environment. Mm. And that uh, maritime counterterrorism environment, we've talked about it before and there's a picture of me sitting on the skipper's seat. How do you lead in an environment like that where you've got teams and pairs and individuals in every nook and cranny? It's just implausible to expect that you can be leading from the front. So often it's the most junior member with the amount of initiative that is pushing forward and and adapting the plan for you. And the way that we thought it would roll out was not the way it rolled out. I mean, we had an expectation that the helicopter assault force would be easily the first on board, and that wasn't the case because of a variety of circumstances, including those cargo derricks. The boat assault force got there first, and they just modified the plan. And we've subsequently used that as a, to me, a a perfect example of this concept of mission command. 
this idea that if you can have a centralized intent that's clearly understood throughout the entire organization, but then decentralize the execution. So delegated decision-making authority down to the people at the coalface, you've got a better chance of success. And that's exactly what happens, that the folk doing that amazing effort of actually climbing, establishing those ladders and climbing out of that sort of C-state four in a suboptimal underpowered rib, actually getting on board before the helicopter assault force, including myself, who all we had to do was slide down a rope. They were instantly able to switch to that high priority area of the bridge. They knew that that was the intent. We needed to seize that bridge first. They saw that we were still mucking around trying to find a roping point and they just switched instantly. And conversely, we were able to then sort of pick up their areas of responsibility. And so it was, a, I think, a really excellent practical example of how that concept of mission command can work. That leadership does not just rest with those with the rank, but anyone has to be able to take up the torch when they're at the coalface, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you're one of these leaders who husbands knowledge and, and sort of uses that as an element of power in your leadership style, then you rob your organization of the ability to do that, to either respond to those unexpected contingencies or seize fleeting opportunities. And it's a bad way uh, in the long run, I think, to try and lead an organization in a fast moving environment. I think also high performance teams don't have hierarchy, they have authorities and a true high performance team has got to flatten out. So we have a leader of leaders and I think that that SAS operating environments no better example of that where everyone in their own right is a leader and plays a leadership role. Well, I want to move on from the Pong Su to today's conversation. We're recording in late April 2020 and we're in the midst of the COVID-19 global pandemic. There's a lot of conversation around the world about leadership, who is making the right and wrong decisions, is power being vested in the right places. I'm interested in looking at the lessons and principles on military leadership and seeing how does that then translate? How can we, the average listener, translate that to our household or our business? How can we take lessons of strength, of resilience from the SAS and military and apply that to this challenging circumstances we're now faced in today? It's fascinating times. And Ben talks about this weird Sophie's choice, making decisions that are the least worst decisions. Because if you think about the problems a bit like teetering on a seesaw, on one side, you've got economics. And if you want all of the economics, you get none of the health, which is on the other side. And then in the middle is this social piece that gets pulled and pushed depending upon how we go. And so the challenges have been ultimate. And, you know, we love the Kenevan framework, the work done by David Snowden, and he talks about the complexity, but we've often overlooked the chaotic environment. And we probably saw a chaotic environment 9-11. We probably saw a chaotic environment in the GFC. And Snowden's Kenevan framework gives a really, really good tool for leaders to think through problems like this. Yeah, so Snowden recommends a methodology of act, sense, respond in a chaotic environment. And that bias to action, I think, is something that's been really important where we've seen, you know, at a national sense, countries that have made decisive early calls that often that's correlated with success. The drama is, of course, that we need to keep an eye on the environment. We can't fall in love with a a methodology and we need to keep responding, which means that sometimes we need to change our mind. And you can see a country like Singapore, which had a sort of early hardline stance and has had a resurgence and is now needing to rethink. I mean, it's a good example of the difficulty that the, the leaders have put in because often it can seem like you're going back against a decision you've previously made. But sort of John Maynard Key's quote, you know, when the, the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? 
that philosophy needs to underpin how we approach these situations, that we want to be decisive. We're often going to need to make decisions in an imperfect information environment. And I think we've seen that play all out all around the world. But then uh, we've got to have enough wherewithal and situational awareness to be able to adapt the decision as the environment throws back data to us. Now, of course, at a national sense, and even at an organisational sense, this is complicated by a lot of spoilers, if you like, a lot of people who for, for own their own agendas are going to be attacking a decision and making it very difficult to either change that decision or adapt it. They're going to be playing the devil's advocate. And, you know, as we said before, these are decisions that are often least worst options. There's going to be negatives to whatever option you choose. And they're decisions that are made in an imperfect information environment. You look at Sweden's decision to go for herd immunity. I think they've, they've had about 1,500 deaths to date. Who knows whether that will turn out to be a, a tragic decision in hindsight or in two years' time, 1,500 will see them a really low national tally and they've, they've made a decision early. So these are least worst options with no really clear apparent answer and it's the classic definition of a, of a wicked problem. And the drivers were so immediate, you know, really post 19 January in Australia, we saw federal, state and local government making decisions that were turning organisations on a dime. I mean, one profound Sunday, a series of decisions made on the Sunday and the Monday at federal and state level that saw organisations coming to work on Monday thinking that they had pretty good solution on the Friday that was now out of, you know, completely out of order. And coming back to the Snowden framework, the accents respond in there. It's a recognition that a lot of what we're doing is experimenting and we need to make sure that we've got our receivers up so that we can measure the success of these experiments. Schooling from home, virtual schooling, it's an experiment. Work from home, it's an experiment. Split shifts, it's an experiment. Everything that we're doing really needs to be measured. And in the recent past, across a number of our clients, we've seen maybe some changes in the landscape, including a recognition that perhaps some schools can go back to actual schooling, that organisations want to seize on that data point and base their decisions made on that. And we're really encouraging people to think about this COVID-19 problem like a campaign plan, that in order to move from a phase to another phase, from response to recovery to build or normalisation, there has to be preconditions set and those preconditions must be met. Bottom line with any experiment is that you want to go into it with an understanding of what you're measuring, the data you're trying to collect. And so any of, as Tim mentioned, within the complex environment, Dave Snowden recommends this probe sense respond methodology. The probes are the experiments. Any experiment we conduct, we want to have a good idea of what we're trying to capture. So what are those KPIs that we, we want to see out of this? If we're seeing them trend in a positive sense, we want to amplify that action, that experiment. If we see them trend in a negative sense, then we want to dampen it and modify our hypothesis. If we're thinking in that respect as a leader, then instantly we're geared towards any action we make, any decision we make like work from home or sort of restriction on movement or shutting down an element of your business. We want to understand what that experiment is, what our hypothesis is, what that experiment's trying to prove or disprove, and what the metrics are that we want to, to gather back from it. 
And equally, exactly as Tim mentioned, we want to start thinking as early as possible about what right looks like, what the end state of this experiment is, and what kind of preconditions we want to see externally driven and internal that will allow us to or inform the decision to change conditions, to come back to work or to reopen a business unit or to conduct a pivot, whatever it might be. Yeah, identify your worst case credible scenario, your mid case and your best case. Make sure that you're tracking those indices, particularly in the external environment. And I'd say health in Australia is probably tracking on a best case glide path, but the economics is slightly better than worst case. And on the campaign plan, the KPIs that Ben mentioned, those metrics, when we're looking at the internal feeds, those data points that we're getting every single day, but aggregating them so we're not missing any weak signals, but also looking outside the organisation to external metrics and bringing those things together. If we're able to map that, for management teams, for decision makers in a dashboard, then we can see what's coming at us with velocity that might cause a big problem in our business. And in doing that, therefore, we can come up with this decision point theory so that we watch this metric, it's got mass and it's coming quickly. When do we need to make a decision? And then once we've identified that, what are the courses of action? What are our options that are available to us? Work them up, test them, present them to leadership for them to be prepared to make a decision rather than waiting for the problem to occur and then again go back to that reactive response piece. And I think aligned with all of this, a a massive component of success in this sort of environment is having that common mental model across certainly your own organisation but also your key external stakeholders. So Tim mentioned before, we're seeing different and sometimes contradictory external data points. We'll see political announcements. We're likely to see different states start lifting restrictions related to travel, social distancing, school, etc. And what we want to be able to do is make sure that our whole organisation understands that we're not going to knee-jerk on the back of these, that we need a set series of criteria to inform a decision to make a change to phase or a change to our posture. And, you know, what's a plan? It's a common basis for change. And you've heard all of our cliches on planning being more important than the plan. Ben mentioned not falling in love with your plan. Certainly when we're in uniform, we would develop plans and then would absolutely want to test how robust they are because why wouldn't you want that plan improved? So what we're encouraging planners to do is once they come up with the plan, throw it out there to be tested. It's a recognition that I reckon this plan's really good. You find the holes in it, which ultimately could make it better. And the way that we've been doing that is through wargaming techniques. So coming up with some scenarios that are here and now problems the business could realise today, but then in the midterm and the long term, longer term is more liability focused, both financial and legal, shorter terms, more health and safety focused. And using a model that, well, a couple of models actually, one action, reaction, counteraction, we agree where the business happens to be, we present the problem, the business uses its plan to test whether or not the plan would stand up, and then we react to that and make sure that everything that we have in place is insulating us for success. This concept of wargaming is is fantastic and I think it's starting to get more traction and awareness outside of the military context. Wargaming within the Australian military appreciation process is the third phase. So we do some kind of intelligence preparation of the battlefield. So we work out, you know, what's going on. We do a mission analysis. So we work out what we need to do. 
We do some course of action development, you know, how can we achieve the mission, bunch of different ways. And then we do this step called course of action analysis. And often this is done through a war game. And from my military experience, this can actually be the real linchpin. I remember a situation when we had to go into East Timor in a really rapid time frame. We were very compressed. We were trying to catch a guy called Alfredo Renato who had seized a, a little facility in a town called Same. And we had a very constricted timeline and not much information, which kind of really compressed that planning process. And I remember the war game that we conducted there. It was almost a de facto course of action development. We were improving the, the course of action as we went along. It was certainly a process of getting every single person around that MUD model that we were using up to speed on, on the plan and the concept. And it was um, sort of a rehearsal, a course of action analysis, a set of orders and a plan development essentially all crammed into one. That sort of vignette really highlighted to me the importance of the wargaming as a exactly what Tim said before, as the planning being more important than the plan, as the activity serving to uh, get everyone onto that same sheet of music so we'd know what each contingent part of the force element we're going to be doing at the same time. You talk about setting those KPIs and setting a wargaming pathway, just using COVID as an example, where in March in particular, and you mentioned that Sunday, Monday, where there was just that constant rolling of big decisions at federal and state level. You've described before leadership being a contact sport, and I've always agreed with that analogy, but it felt like in this game, it wasn't just you were being tackled and having to reassess your play. The rules of the game were being changed during the match in terms of how points are scored, how you're allowed to tackle. It was a whole redefining of how all that operated. It's one thing to say, okay, we know we sort of go in with a overarching mission command set of principles or rules, but when the whole landscape is being pulled out from under you, it's having the perspective, I guess, or being able to force yourself to adjust to that bigger picture perspective, reassess, not just create a new plan, but create new rules. Yeah, without a doubt. And this, I think, is a, a great example of the difficulty of working in complexity. And in particular, I think this concept of wicked problems is really instructive here. The actual phrase was coined in the 70s by a couple of design theorists, a guy called Horst Rittel and Melvin Weber. So Rittel and, and Weber were the ones who came up with the phrase, but they also really instructively came up with a bunch of characteristics of wicked problems. And they are things like wicked problems have no stopping rule. We are not talking about a sort of game style situation where that it's just going to end at some point. The one that I think that really sprung to mind when you were just saying that is their rule number six, wicked problems do not have an enumerable or an exhaustively describable set of potential solutions. And my interpretation of this is exactly what you said before. We're playing a sport where each team can field as many people as they want. You can defend the goal using a shotgun if you want, and you can score on a totally different field and in which no one's quite sure where uh, full time is going to end. So if we're thinking about a rules-bound system when we're approaching these problems, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Which is why the campaign plan's incredibly important. And by way of one example of a wicked problem and considering organisational liability, which is better? Work from home or allowing staff, some staff, to come into work? Because both of those dimensions have the risk of liability. But coming back to the point we made before, which is least worse? Is it better for staff to work from home and potentially get themselves into a health and safety condition, inclusive mental health or an urban ergonomics problem? Or is it better to have staff come to work and if indeed there is a workplace infection and transmission, that they're exposed to that? So there's no right answer. And it comes back to the principle of experimenting, making sure that we've got the receivers out there, 
to measure, to test what we've done. And I think wargaming is a really, really instructive part of making some robust plans that are going to survive the COVID-19 campaign. Is there an anecdote or two from your previous careers that exemplifies that adaptability, that reflexivity, those skills required in a time like this? I was thinking about life a little bit out of uniform and the year was 2005 for me. I was in Afghanistan as one of the principal planners for the National Assembly and Provincial Council elections, so they're parliamentary elections. 441 districts. We ultimately opened, I think, 30,000 polling locations in those 441 districts. But the overlay was really challenging, logistically difficult. Some of these districts had no roads. Security, incredibly difficult. Often you could not move by road even if there was a road. And the way that we had to address the problem, noting that there's no sliding timescale, so the one thing that was sure was the election date in September, we had to take this campaign view. And I was fresh out of uniform and I applied exactly the methodology that Ben talked about, a baseline appreciation process to work out, well, what is the intelligence picture? How does it differ from province to province, district to district to district? What do we need to do to ensure security and safety and a supply chain so we can move hard copy polling cards to a count centre? And most importantly, how do we keep everyone safe, including population of 14 million voters. And one of the fascinating things that I know we've talked about a lot was our inability to move freely. And we had to put tremendous trust into our local teams, including Afghans, to be able to execute the plan. And the way that we did that was through making sure that we had this shared mental model. Every week we'd run a synchronization session where each of the regional leaders and sometimes our provincial leadership would come and talk about what was happening in their province. And then we would, in some way, shape and form, exercise some theories against that. So principally run some wargaming scenarios on is that the worst case scenario? How could it get worse? And is what we're developing going to be good enough to stand up on election day, considering what we're seeing on a daily basis? Now, those sync sessions actually ended up started only being an internal to the elections team. And bear in mind, we had a whole heap of experts there, electoral experts, logistics experts, UN people. But where we got to as we closed up to election day is that we had more and more people wanting to come and attend. We had coalition forces. At the time, coalition was separate to NATO. So we had NATO forces. We had embassy staff. We had agencies of all sorts and varieties that would come and sit in the room so they could understand the ground picture and how we were preparing things ahead of the election. And actually, the room just progressively got bigger and bigger and bigger until we ended up in a warehouse. I think that's the value of the campaign planning and stress testing along the way, you know, making sure that the experiment's right and ultimately we're going to get through this. And I mean, I'm delighted to say that we opened 30,000 locations in all 441 districts on election day and we had absolutely no one killed which was incredible when you consider that environment in 2005 in Afghanistan. That's a fantastic result. Ben, can you think of a similar one from your past career? The biggest, I guess, call for adaptation at an organisational level was the transition out of the campaigning in Afghanistan. Um, so I was commanding officer of the SAS at the point that we moved out of a essentially a, a decade plus of pretty intense campaigning nonstop within Afghanistan 
It was a very interesting lesson for me in organisational change, and in particular in terms of that collective understanding of organisational purpose. In that respect, we'd had a, like I said, over a decade, which was for many of the unit their entire career, and for a lot that's enough to get a young trooper pretty much all the way up to patrol commander. So we had this whole generation of leaders whose main focus over that period had been the operations in Afghanistan, which represented in many cases one subset of the entire complement of skills that 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 unit needs to bring to the party. And so the mental model within the organisation of what right looks like, of what it meant to be one of us, of what success looked like in that context was very biased towards operations in Afghanistan and particularly the, the kinetic, the direct action style operations. As we were transitioning out of that, the roles that we were required to emphasise from a national security perspective were almost the opposite. You know, it was a lot of work in the region, a lot of cooperating work with interagency partners and regional allies. And so it was a, a big paradigm shift in terms of the tasking, but it demanded a, a big change in terms of the organisational culture and, and organisational mental model. And so that was a, a really fascinating period in terms of needing to respond to a change in the environment and looking at the levers within the organisation that you could pull and emphasise to try and get that cultural change. And in many ways, we tried to look at who were the role models and standard bearers within the organisation. Now, many of these were people in formal positions of authority, but in, on occasion, they were people that held no real formal rank, but were extremely influential, were extremely looked up to across the organisation. We sought to, to make sure that everyone in the organisation, but particularly those kind of decision makers, what I guess we call influencers in these sort of social media days, understood what the purpose, the intent of what we were doing was and tried to use those sort of organic means of leveraging. And the other one was just complete transparency. So in many cases, people had become accustomed to a certain way of conducting business. They had, as I said, that mental model that this is what it meant to be one of us. And so there was a risk that a change to that could be seen as sort of confronting or, or um, challenging what people's view of, of what the organisation should do. And so we were at pains to, to try and be as transparent as possible about the rationale for that. It was interesting. We also look back into some of our foundation stories and the importance of culture, I think, is, I mean, all these quotes, culture, each strategy for breakfast, all that sort of stuff, that really came back home throughout that period. But looking at the foundation of an organisation and what it means to be a member of that organisation, I think that was a really important part of how we approached the change. Because we found that the roles that we now needed to emphasise and that correction back to a much broader range of roles and capabilities was completely in line with why the organisation was set up in the, the first place. So rather than this representing a challenge or a, a change of what it meant to be a member of that unit, it was actually entirely consistent with the real raison d'etre of that particular organisation. And so we leveraged off that to a large extent in, I guess, marketing or, or uh, communicating the change internally. Actually, question from did you use any of the grandparents, you know, those people that were past generation? How did you leverage those people? Well, I actually did. I used your son's grandparents. So I, um, Tim's dad was the Colonel Commandant at the time, and that was absolutely fantastic. So he'd had Vietnam experience and not a dissimilar sort of transition out of a, a big focus on campaigning in one particular environment and then moving into another. 
it's kind of funny in that particular example that counterterrorism was sort of the new flavour coming out of Vietnam and into the 80s. And it was very interesting talking with, with Rod Timstad about how that changed and how that influenced the environment. And really, I mean, it always goes full circle. By the time I got into the unit, what it meant to be a member of the unit was black suits. CT was what it was all about. And of course, that was just one turn of the generational handle of the emphasis of tasks and yeah, so we definitely did. We reached back into the founding fathers, if you like, to get those lessons. It's interesting to compare those, though, and please correct me if I've got the wrong end of the stick here, Tim, but you were preparing for a specific event. All the preparation was going into executing that that day goes off exactly as you are hoping for, and you're coming up with various scenarios to work for that. And obviously, if it's successful, that can be a model looked to in the future, but you've got one specific moment that is your focus, whereas, Ben, you're looking ahead and you can prepare prepare for this transition, you to a point know it's coming, it's a thing in the future, then it's something that's happening. And then it's an ongoing cultural shift you have to manage after the event. So they're interesting sort of different ways to approach how they unfold differently in time. Yeah, but I think both of them are pretty relevant for what a lot of organisations are experiencing at the moment. Tim mentioned war games before. We've worked with a lot of companies, wargaming specific sort of incidents. And the, the obvious one is a potential outbreak in your workforce, outbreak of coronavirus in your workforce or a positive case. You know, how are you going to deal with that from a whole range of perspectives, everything from the internal communications, the health, the business continuity, the image and reputation all that sort of stuff. So in many ways, we have organisations with a requirement to prepare for that single event, like the elections that Tim described. But in the background of all of this, we are experiencing a cataclysmic change. The word unprecedented has become a cliche, but we are certainly experiencing big change that is going to have lasting impacts. And so I think organisationally, just like that transition out of a wartime footing within the unit, I think organisationally, we need to be looking at, well, what is it that this company is going to, to need to be doing? What are our core roles and how is that going to differ with this very vastly changed external environment? And talk cross-cultural leadership. I mean, I was just thinking about another anecdote. The year was 2001, the country Sierra Leone, west coast of Africa, broadly the size of Tasmania. 10 years of civil war, you could nearly set your clock by the revolutionary United Front coming into Freetown. And for those that have seen the movies and the documentaries, they committed some severe atrocities. The army were as bad as the RUF. The only thing that was binding things together was this collection of civil defence force, these local militias that were all about protecting their own villages. And I was dropped in as a military advisor in 2001, and I had a severe case of imposter syndrome. I'd never worked in a military brigade, but my initial role was a brigade advisor. I had absolutely no idea how a brigade worked. And the guy who I took over from, who was an Irishman, said, uh, Tim, there's nothing you can do here at the moment that can make things worse. <laughs> the bar's been set nice and low, yep. <laughs> you ended up making it. <laughs> anyone can make it worse, it's me. We trust you. I ended up the most fulfilling part of that whole period, about nine months in Sierra Leone, was with a battalion called 10 Battalion. It was the furthest battalion from the capital Freetown. It was right down in the diamond fields and the Kailahun Finger headquartered in a place called Kenema, which was an old diamond town. And the commanding officer of 10 Battalion, a Sierra Leonean, big jolly fellow called John Manseray. He was a former diamond trader himself. He'd been blown up by a landmine. He was riddled with scars from that particular event. There was no buildings. 
this is an environment that was incredibly challenging from a health perspective. HIV riddled the country. At any particular point in time, 10% of the soldiers were out with malaria and there were things like Lassa fever, which was transmitted by rats to humans. And if you picked up Lassa fever, you were dead in 24 hours. So the whole operating environment was incredibly, it was unbelievable for an Australian to go to this place. And I had 600 people in that battalion, but then 500 pro-government militia. And as I walked up to the tent, because the battalion had no buildings, uh, John Manseray leaned back in his chair, put his hands behind his head, and he said, well, Captain Tim, welcome to 10 Battalion. If you want to run the battalion, no problems. It was an interesting little introduction. And I, I do remember saying, no, Colonel, your job is to run the battalion. My job is to advise you and together we'll get a very good result. But the cross-cultural part for nine months was absolutely unbelievable and you know, certainly a boy's own adventure. But leading in that environment was also very challenging. I mean, the one thing, of course, you start with is, right, well, who are these enemy? The Revolutionary United Front, you know, what's their intent? What's their capability? How have they attacked before? How do they defend? Where are they? And one thing that dawned on me was there was a small element in the RUF that the Sierra Leone Army were absolutely terrified of. And it was called the Small Boys Unit. These were kids as young as six who were generally taken from their families, abducted as displaced people moved from Sierra Leone over the border into Guinea, and they were taught to fight. And they were given drugs and alcohol, and they became this pure group of fighters who knew no fear. And in every assault that the RUF had, it was led by the small boys unit. And towards the back were the leaders. And right at the very back were what they were called were bushwives who were carrying the ammunition to resupply forward. But yeah, the most feared unit was this small boys unit. And through the course of nine months, we captured quite a few boys, including one that I think I've shown been a picture of, a boy by the name of Alaji Sese. I'll never forget his name. And this kid, never seen a white person in his life, was sitting on the steps of the cells at battalion headquarters. And he's absolutely terrified. But he woke up one day in this village and realised this just doesn't feel right. You know, I've been taught to fight and I've been given drugs and alcohol, but it just doesn't feel right. And that boy walked 40 kilometres to a checkpoint where we picked him up. Yeah, quite incredible. A little reminiscing there, but uh, I've, I found the whole cross-cultural bit absolutely remarkable in trying to understand the problems that were just so embedded health-wise, uh, security-wise, the challenges of disparate geography. We were 330 kilometres from the capital city, but it took us nine hours to drive there. An amazing time. It's a deep paradigm shift. You have to become fluent in a completely other culture and situation to understand how to set these new parameters and goals. Yeah. And I really, the one phrase I really dislike is the person has no experience. Because I think if you've got energy, experience comes quickly. If you're able to put your mind to analyzing the problem, the box set of things that drive an organization, or in that particular case, the unit that I was posted to and everything that confronted them from a health, security, community challenges, then you tend to pick it up really quickly. And most importantly, as a leader, and definitely it was undoubtable that wherever I went, people deferred to me for decisions, but empathy. I mean, if you're able to engage all of those Sierra Leone Army leaders at different levels, regardless of whether they could speak English or not, and just really work hard to make sure you understood the context of their problems, then it really set us up for success. I think that was one real learning that I took. I, I had to invest time and energy, and I think those two things are real, really important components of leaders to make sure that I got 
the full and clear picture. And that meant to my own time detriment and comfort that I had to be out there in peculiar places, asking a series of questions, sometimes repeatedly, so that I could understand the answer and the context, sometimes in different ways to verify and validate that they'd understood it and had given me the right answer. Yeah, yeah, it was an amazing experience. It's funny, we, we love that saying, experience is the thing you get just after you need it. And I think Tim's point's excellent that, yes, you know, you can develop experience and if you're clever enough to reflect and, and learn from the things that have happened to you, then clearly that makes you better positioned to face similar or even novel situations in the future. But this idea of experience is kind of relying on you having stuffed things up in the past. And I think that recognition is important as leaders that we need to maybe go a little easy on ourselves. I think we work with a lot of people who I, I believe have the impression that they're failing as a leader because things aren't working out perfectly or because they made a mistake or they stuffed something up or their decision turned out to be wrong with the benefit of hindsight. What we should be doing is looking at these as, as those sort of experiments and getting whatever data we can. We love running sort of hot washes, debriefs for organisations to really try and codify that at a collective level. But I think at an individual level, if we can change our mindset to look at our mistakes as the gaining of this experience and really trying to extract the learnings from it, then we're going to set ourselves up in a better way. And it comes back to this concept of resilience, which I think is really important as we look at this coronavirus situation, because it's going to be really easy to beat ourselves up about how we're leading or, or how we're working through this situation. And it's going to be really easy to look back with the wonderful benefit of hindsight and say, oh, we made all these mistakes. I don't think we're going to be able to avoid that in, in many circumstances. But what we do want to do is maybe just go a little gentler on ourselves and frame these sort of situations as learning opportunities and really embrace what Carol Dweck coined as the growth mindset, that we want to look at all these situations that are challenging and daunting and ambiguous and unprecedented and look at them as opportunities to learn, to test our leadership and on the backside of it, to conduct a little individual debrief and look at, well, did that work well? What could I do better? And less about sort of trying to template it so that oh, if I see this again next time, I'll do exactly the same thing. And more about trying to learn, well, what characteristics of that situation that went well can I replicate? What characteristics of that situation that went poorly would I want to modify in, in the future? It's very Churchillian, the leadership opportunity. You know, we, we're really expecting leaders to rise to the occasion and probably no other time in an organization's history of leaders being scrutinized as much. And, you know, the metaphoric management by walking around that does allow you to show some empathy and take the temperature still needs to happen. I think that if you're a leader and you are not making sure that you're connecting with staff on a daily basis and there's something wrong and or setting up a buddy system. The other thing that we're very cautious of is noting the campaign nature of COVID-19 is leadership fatigue. And uh, working with a client a couple of weeks ago, and I said, how is the leadership team going? And um, uh, the client said, Tim, I reckon we've got an, about two weeks left. They were running with such velocity and such intensity and quite frankly, such passion that they were ignorant of the fact that fatigue will absolutely degrade decision-making. And this is an environment where you want to be crystal clear and accurate with your decision making. And so we would really ask leaders to make sure that there is a wellness program for leadership, probably not from within your own organization, but seek coaching, mentoring outside and also program in organizational site efforts. 
to make sure that your health is in good space and that you're going to be able to maintain an intensity, that you're tuned in on all those things that are important and most critically that your decision making is going to be consistent throughout. I think it's vital that we are looking out for each other and using those external resources that you're alluding to. But in a situation like this, we also need to be able to rely on ourselves to a point of having resilience, whether it's resilience in a context of you are leading people through a storm, business sense, health sense, whatever, or you're just going through the situation, your life has been uprooted and you're working from home or your kids are stuck at home with you trying to do all their schoolwork or not really and that's a problem in itself. We've talked about wargaming and setting KPIs, but we need to actually just set those KPIs for our own well-being as much as we do performance and other outcomes. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of components of resilience. We've done a lot of work in this space and collaborating with my brother, Dr. Dan Pronk, on this concept of resilience. And our view is that there are a whole raft of elements that are modifiable that we can improve on within our own individual and our team's resilience. There is certainly a physical, a body component. And I'm not going to waste your good listeners' time talking about the fact that you should be eating better, you should be exercising, you should be sleeping. We all know this. I don't think we need to sort of hammer on the the rationale behind it and yet so few of us do it you know this is as close to a silver bullet as it gets and a lot of us just can't seem to find the time for it but this is really important and anecdotally you speak to so many people who when their their forebrain their conscious thought is so crammed with decisions and questions and contingencies and stuff information and yet if they can take that time to go for a walk do a little bit of exercise you know that thought that comes to you in the shower metaphorically or often on the running track i think is is demonstrative of the fact that this is beneficial not just from a physical but from a mental sense so yeah definitely a body component we need to look after ourselves in that respect but also there's a a mind or a spiritual component and the attitude that we bring to a situation like this is absolutely critical in terms of our ability to deal with it and our ability to be standing at the end of it. I just mentioned this idea of going a bit gentler on ourselves, doing some debriefs, the growth mindset, and I encourage any leader to look at Carol Dweck's work in that respect because that stuff will change your life if you can re-gear your perspective to, to be more of a growth and less of a fixed mindset. But also just underpinning philosophies like Stoicism, Tim and I both subscribe to the daily Stoic Ryan Holiday's fantastic daily mail out. But these little reminders of the Stoic philosophy, which we both subscribe to, and the ways that we can tangibly bring this into our lives in terms of recognition that life is not fair, Mm. that things aren't always going to turn out in a just sense, but we still want to strive for virtue and strive to be the best individuals that we can be. I find that a really good sort of daily top up on the the philosophical underpinnings to how I approach life. Yeah, it's centuries of difference, but the Stoics had their firstborn killed. The Stoics were sent to Corsica for six years, no Wi-Fi there. And one of the things that Gladwell talks about, he steals it from Corinthians for those that are more religious, was the theory of desirable difficulty, which is a very Stoic theory that, you know, in order to make yourself better, you have to seek true challenges. And, you know, we love the phrase, there is no happiness without struggle. The other thing that I find a bit fascinating for those that wanted to reflect a little bit and are working from home with little to no supervision is the question, would you hire you now? 
now that you know how you are without any supervision, would you hire you? And that's a bit of a tell for me personally. I like to ask myself the question, you know, did I achieve everything today that I would have under normal business circumstances in a work now that I am working from home? Hmm. I wonder. <laughs> if I had my time again, I would not hire you, Tim. <laughs> Speaking of hiring each other, you guys are, in a sense, at the coalface of this situation. You run a business together in crisis leadership. How are you, I guess, taking the temperature of the country at the moment and how individuals and organisations are coping with it all? It's been fascinating. It's certainly been a busy period for us and we don't take that lightly or for granted given all of the upheaval in employment and the wider economic landscape. From a professional sense, it's been fascinating and, and very rewarding, I think, to work with organisations across a whole range of industries as they come to terms with this. And it's been really interesting from my perspective to see the different potential impacts across a broad section of our society. And the economic one is clearly one that's constant throughout and that livelihoods kind of impact that Tim alluded to before is well and truly in the forefront of all of our clients. We're working with a, a client in the aged care sector where it's really the lives as well. So for a lot of us, we are probably not concerned about, you know, for younger people, not that concerned about actually uh, dying as a result of this disease. But there's a massive segment of the population for whom this is a real possibility. And so that helps crystallize the real urgency of this. And I think, certainly from my perspective, really reinforces this requirement for us to, I think, prioritise our collective responsibilities over our individual rights to an extent. It's been interesting for me, I guess, from a national philosophical point of view to see the United States attitude towards this. This is a nation that's always prided itself on this concept of freedom and individual rights. And I wonder if that isn't to a detriment that we are seeing large swathes of that population wanting to prioritise their individual rights over their collective responsibilities, which potentially can have a, a really detrimental effect at a societal level. So and typically we've always had this rules-based structure, haven't we, Ben? I mean, most organisations have plans, procedures, they're very clear on what you can and can't do, or we know that's not working right now in the arrangements that have had to be put in place. So we're encouraging organisations to go to this principles-based system to try and adapt their corporate culture through this. There's opportunity there where staff don't need rules because they just understand the broad principles and you know the guidance and intent and all those other critical components that give some steerage on priorities, but they work to the best intent of the organisation that's underpinned by some solid principles. I mean, rules can be gamed, principles can't really be gamed. Mm. And I mean, the second you set out rules, people are looking to game it, whereas I think principles in many ways make the discussion about adherence a lot easier. You know, you're not saying, well, in accordance with section 34B of para two of, of our charter, I can do this. It's more about, does this make sense? Are you doing what you can to socially distance in this case? The organisations that can adopt that really strong ethos, sort of principles-based philosophy, are generally set up well to deal with these more ambiguous sort of circumstances. And the measures of effectiveness and feedback loops, I mean, the companies that we're seeing do this well are getting some great results in seizing the opportunity that does present through crisis events. So setting up a hotline, an email account for any staff to provide feedback, innovation ideas, things that could be done smarter and better, and probably a, a call out for all of those who are at home and have spare capacity, I'd seek to be repurposed because there's individual opportunity here to grow yourself, your skills, your knowledge in an environment where 
you probably wouldn't really get a similar amount of opportunity. If you're back at work, you'd just be going through the daily grind. But now where the business is focused on the things that are really, really important, there's a chance for you to retool, repurpose and switch out to main efforts to support those. It's a growth opportunity for exploring new options, new way of doing things, or just self-betterment, while at the same time embracing what Ben was saying of don't judge yourself too harshly. Let's just take it as we go. Yeah, and this point of perspective is a really critical one. We often talk in our workshops about this idea of authentic leadership, which is absolutely contingent on you understanding your own individual narrative. And in many ways, this is malleable. I mean, the external events happen, but as Epictetus, one of the great Stoics said, man is not shaped by events, but by the view he takes of them. Obviously read that as man or woman. And this is a way of, I think, galvanizing our our resilience, looking at a situation like this and trying to sort of frame it in a way that reinforces your your own individual narrative as an authentic leader. You know, you you may have lost your job. One way of looking at that is, you know, this sucks. It's the, the end of my livelihood as I see it. Another way of looking at it is this is something I am going to get through. It's certainly not optimal, but it's something I'm going to work towards and and get through. And clearly that gives you something very, I guess, very significant to be proud of at the other end of it. So that the exact same events can have two very, or elicit two very different mindsets. Certainly all of those resilience building blocks do bring us to the necessary task competence in your job. You know, the more you are comfortable, unconsciously competent, uh, the more successful you'll be. But there's another component here that does link back to where we are in work from home arrangements, and that's the ability to adapt. Yeah, and within our own resilience model, we see this idea of adaptation as being the, I guess, the sum total. This is the zenith of resilience that you want to aspire to, where you are essentially bulletproof to whatever life throws at you. So by having adequate investment in all the other layers, the things like your own mind, your own body, your task confidence, your professional purpose, it gives you a platform from which you can face any challenge, including those that are novel or unexpected, the metaphorical black swans. And so really that is where we we want to, to get to this idea of having that unconquerable soul, to, to coin a phrase, where you have enough foundation in terms of the investment in your own resilience and professional and personal competence that you're ready for whatever life throws at you. Mm, yeah, bomb-proof balance sheets, yes. Bomb-proof supply chains, yes. Bomb-proof third-party dependencies, yes, but also bomb-proof people. And I think this is a great test to do some self-reflection on how resilient you are. And if the tide is out in any of those areas that we've talked about, seek an opportunity to top it up. We're releasing this episode on the 12th of June, and I understand that's a rather significant anniversary. Yeah, it is. The 12th of June, 1996, specifically, one SAS squadron and air crew from A Squadron of Five Aviation Regiment had just completed some final orders up in Townsville just after dark. It was a pretty routine live fire special recovery training exercise. The mission had been rehearsed by day. There was nothing particularly unusual about the night mission profile. The whole concept was to exercise the recovery of Australian hostages being held offshore. So speed was of the essence and the helicopters were to get pretty much right over target, drop ropes and allow the SAS operators to go down the ropes and both fire live fire and use explosives to recover some simulated hostages. 
the special operations aircrew flew on night vision goggles and at about 30 seconds they changed formation and that's where some significant problems occurred. Two Black Hawk helicopters collided into each other. Both crash landed, killed 15 SAS soldiers and three aircrew. Also invalided and injured a significant number more. The one thing that's not known about the night is that there are also 14 bravery awards as guys raced into burning helicopters with detonating explosive charges and ammunition and pulled people out of the wreck. Quite incredible. That is tragic, and I can only imagine confronting on a number of levels. From the clinical organisational perspective, you're losing a great amount of resources there in terms of cumulative experience and professionalism down to the human cost and the effect that would have on the families, the survivors, and the morale, spree de corps of the regiment at the time. Hmm. I was in the army. I was, I was still at uh, the Defence Force Academy. I was a third year cadet when it happened. So my own sort of reflections from this are only secondhand, but certainly having served in the units very closely with a lot of people who are involved. One of the most poignant sort of vignettes that sticks out in my mind was from one of the survivors who described the period immediately afterwards and just the funeral after funeral after funeral and that sort of constant period of grieving and, and the impact that that must have had. And, and he describes in particular one memorial service held at the unit near the Memorial Rock, which is a, a very special sacred sort of place within the, the organisation where the names of the fallen are inscribed. And as they're conducting this memorial service, in the background is the sound of gunfire. And already the unit, who had lost the best part of a, a third of its counter-terrorist capability, was getting replacements, getting people trained up at short notice to take that position on the, the metaphorical front line. And that description of these grieving individuals, men and women, taking time to pay their respects, but concurrently the organisation replacing their fallen is something that has always stuck with me and I think speaks volumes to the, the nature of that unit and I guess inherent risks in a lot of what they do. My father was actually a, a helicopter pilot as well, and I remember he always used to, or he had a plaque, a little sort of decorative plaque, which had an inscription that said, flying is like the sea, whilst not inherently dangerous, can be extremely unforgiving. I've always had that in back of my head. You can get very, well, not complacent, but you get very used to doing things, yeah, accepting of things that you do a lot of planning, you do a lot of training, you do a lot of equipment checks to make sure that they're not inherently dangerous, but gee, they can be unforgiving if something goes wrong. And I think, yeah, it speaks also to the resilience of individuals and teams in that unit. I did selection in 96. I'd just finished and I was waiting to join my reinforcement cycle. And actually I was posted to one squadron, the squadron that was involved that night. And so there were guys in my troop who had been on board the aircraft that had crashed and their stories were quite incredible. In fact, one of my favorite worst stories was one guy who had the whole transmission come down on his head and spine and he was carried out of the burning aircraft with ammunition and explosives detonating all around him. He was taken to the triage point and the squadron sergeant major was yelling at him to wiggle his toes. And they were watching to see if he could wiggle his toes. With all of the pain racking through his body, he just managed to wiggle his toes. It was about all he could do. And the squadron sergeant major said, your priority three, the lowest priority casualty that you could get which kind of gives an indication of what else was happening that night. And fast forward into Townsville General Hospital. He was in intensive care unit, tubes everywhere. And he woke up and his family were there. And his family were just crying, decimated at what he looked like. And he said to me, 
all I wanted him to do was talk to me. Not feel sorry for me, just talk to me. Yeah, amazing. What was it like, Tim, being a young guy having just joined that regiment and from your own point of view before that crash, full of, I'm sure, pride and satisfaction and excitement at this new shiny stage of your career and then something that significant and that tragic happens. Did it take the shine off it? Was it a reality check on the dangers of what you are getting into? Not for me personally. I think it definitely affected the unit because we did see a period of inquiries and investigations that went on. You know, let's probably sit that to one side for the time being because you know, it was necessary, but that long hangover definitely distracted some of the leadership. Coming into the squadron, it was fascinating to watch the way people rebuilt. And the lessons were learnt from that night, but it was, to Ben's point, a necessity to make sure that we could deliver capability that was important nationally and the ability to project that capability anywhere, which is exactly why they were training in the way that they did. Because when things come up, they come up at short notice. And if you haven't run those sorts of profiles that do inherently carry risk, then you're never going to be successful in operations. I love my time in one squadron as a young troop commander. I really soaked up everything that people talked to me about, particularly that night, so I could understand try and get my head inside the leadership challenges. My OC was the OC on the evening and I've really enjoyed his mentoring and tutoring on the challenges for leaders when you've just had 15 of your team killed and many others invalided. And he speaks passionately about that night. I really love my time there. Well, the scheduling of this episode was coincidental, but when you guys pointed out to me what this date is before we started recording, I thought it was important to acknowledge. So thank you for sharing your memories and reflections on that. No worries. You're welcome. It's been quite an in-depth conversation on principles of leadership and resilience and applying anecdotes and lessons from your past lives into the current situation. And it's been also really interesting to hear the situations you're grappling with at the moment. Another thing you guys are currently dealing with is the ongoing second season of the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Before I just ask you for general highlights or things we have to look forward to coming up, I remember you kicked off the season discussing tactics for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I have to ask, do that include tips on stock up on toilet paper? Are you to blame? Like, or what, you know? <laughs> Very Nostradamus, wasn't it? Well, in retrospect. It, although our top tip was um, seize your local Bunnings, use that as a, as a supply base. So no, we didn't think about toilet paper, which we probably should have. So not that prescient. But yeah, no, time will tell whether our tactics actually work. We had some great feedback. Tim's genius plan of setting molasses traps to... Wait, <laughs> integrated obstacle plans. That culminated in a molasses trap, a large yeah. trap that the zombies would end up in. And then and to, to, to run over with, um, with headers, with combine harvesters. We've subsequently received feedback from a good friend of ours who actually knows what he's talking about, unlike either of us, and says that you'd probably get zombie bits clogging the headers. Apparently they tend to clog quite easily when you run over things like zombies, so we might have to refine the plan. And, you know, to that point, the current real version of a molasses trap is staying at home and washing your hands and exercising good hygiene. Oh, oh, oh. Tim, I reckon you were drawing a long bow to try and claim any sort of... I, I pretty much invented it. <laughs> you guys were brutal. I know you killed off Mark Wales, former SAS officer. So... Hang on, he, he killed himself off by his refusal to remove 
that jacket, which we subsequently had a great episode with Mark reflecting on his choice of attire for different situations, including the jacket and uh, snakeskin boots and on a tropical island. Cowboy boots in Samoa for yeah. Survivor. But he, he did fight back and he gave some good justification on why he shouldn't be killed off. I've spoken to Mark's wife, Samantha, and she has fond memories of him bringing that jacket on Survivor, so I'm sure he won't regret that too much. Yeah, well, maybe the ends justified the means, but I still remain adamant that he's dead within the first 24 hours of a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Whether he can make guacamole or not. Zombie apocalypse aside, what are some other highlights that are already out with the Unforgiving 60 or the general gist of what listeners can look forward to if they go over and check out your channel? So Monica Georgieva, first female infantry officer in Australia, served in the 1st Battalion up in Townsville, also had two runs at SAS selection. If you want to be inspired by an incredible female leader who is about five foot four, and I think on selection she was 51 kilograms. That's a great episode to listen to. Another one of my favourites is Mitchell Martin. So uh, just turned 23 years old, incredible musician that we were very fortunate to have in the studio with his guitar. He has a track syndicated with some others on Spotify that's had over 500,000 downloads. And the really tragic side of this for our entertainers is the big impact it's had on them. So I think as he walked into the studio, he had his last gig cancelled and so you know we, we're imploring people to get out there and support our comedians like Mick Nevin and Diana Nguyen who we've also had on the show like Mitchell Martin and others we know everyone's doing it pretty tough and there's some good innovation too I watched him the other night on a, a Facebook live jam which he did from home which was which was super cool and he's just released his new song called Be Myself which I think is really special it's about just being yourself and ignoring all of the other distractions we also spoke with a guy called Alec Torelli, a professional poker player, which I found a fascinating episode, not being a sort of poker player myself, but really interesting, not only on the, the poker, but also what he's drawn out of that in terms of his view on risk and, you know, dealing with people and decision making under stress and tells and psychology. Some really interesting insights from someone who's very much at the top of his game. Uh, Heather Taylor, who's about to, well, trying to row her boat from California to Hawaii, has been a little waylaid with the virus. She had to go into isolation, but she's currently training using elastic bands and waiting for an opportunity to get to her boat and launch it. Wouldn't that be social distancing if she... <laughs> that's, what, that's what we said. You, surely the best place for you is the middle of the Pacific Ocean. 120 days of social distancing, <laughs> just you at a rowboat and marine life. But we're really excited. We've got a very special Anzac Day edition coming up where we've reached out to a bunch of our veteran colleagues, including many who have been featured on the show. We've asked them each three questions. You know, what's their most memorable Anzac Day? How do they normally spend Anzac Day? And what will they miss most about this socially distanced Anzac Day? We're collating it at the moment. We'll go to air on Anzac Day, but just fantastic vignettes. And, and I hope, I mean, this is going to be a very different Anzac Day this year. It'll obviously have happened by the time this goes to air, but I hope that this little episode can provide in some way some of that beautiful sort of environment you get on Anzac Day where you talk to old mates and you trade a few war stories and, and reflect on the things in the past. So yeah. We've also been really fortunate with this one to be in touch with the War Memorial who we've offered to give this and, and some of our other episodes to their oral history archive and, and they were kind enough to accept. So we're really looking forward to ongoing sort of collaboration with them because it's it's a great way, I think, of capturing some contemporary veteran perspectives on their lives in uniform and post-service, as is clearly your podcast series, Alex. 
Well, the Anzac episode, like you say, it'll already be out by the time people are listening. And I encourage everyone listening to go back onto your channel, find that episode and have a listen if they've not already. And yes, that's obviously my mission statement as well, what you just described. And my first two seasons are with the War Memorial Archive. I'm behind on my paperwork and haven't got season <laughs> three there yet, but I'll get onto that. That's beautiful. We're a bit behind you in that respect, but I think it's fantastic. The War Memorial is such a special place for Australians in general, I think, but for the veteran community. And yeah, it's fantastic to be able to support it even in this small way. Guys, remind listeners where they can find you and your podcast online. So our website is www.unforgiving60.com. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com and we're on all social media including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and actually we've even got a LinkedIn page. And YouTube. We've actually (laughs) on YouTube. (laughs) Actually the Mark Wales episode is on YouTube as are some others and if you want to see that towering giant of a man in studio with Ben and I, that's a good fun episode to watch. Always great, fun and insightful to chat with both of you. So Ben and Tim, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Alex. Awesome, Alex. Thank you. More of that music in just a moment. We're going to close out today's episode with the song US Radio by SAS original rock band The Externals. This is in honour of my guests, as Ben and Tim use this track as one of their main theme tunes for The Unforgiving 60. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and at LOTLPod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, where you can listen to all our previous episodes. You can find us in your favourite podcast app, Spotify, and on YouTube. If you want to listen to some other interviews with SAS veterans, try from our second season, number 18, Don Barnby, Volume 1. Listening for enemy, looking for enemy signs and all this sort of stuff, not knowing what's around the next tree, around the next bend. And Volume 2. It's still raw with me what happened up there because we're unarmed and the atrocities that were going on were, were you know, horrendous right up to murder and rape and all that sort of stuff and it was just horrendous. Number 28, Mark Wales. They were building positions in there for a fight. And so in that battle, one of our guys was shot and killed. Number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, Volume 1. Certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment. And it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with, you know, the day before. And also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation and and you simply can't. And volume two. I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower-paced life. And yes, that is Ben's brother. And don't miss number 36, Mark Donaldson, VC. People will die. It might be you. It might be your mate. It might be the brand new guy. It's going to happen at some stage because there's lots of bullets that fly around or there's, there's dangerous work that we do. And Voodoo Medics with Mark Donaldson VC, Dr. Dan Pronk and Kristen Shorten. They quite often dealt with patching up the enemy. They quite often dealt with patching up the civilian population as well. Having this misconception that every veteran and particularly every combat veteran is damaged and all of them are, are coming apart with post-traumatic stress. They've got their mates' lives in their hands. They're also required to fight. They're under a lot of pressure and they carry a lot of responsibility. 
in Season 3, besides Ben and Tim's first interview on this show, also have a listen to Lessons of a Combat Doctor with Dr. Dan Pronk. But I never had any doubt or second guessing. So mentally that was like, hang on, I got this. Yeah, I'm, I'm injured. Everyone's injured. I'm losing weight. Everyone's losing weight. We're all broken. We're all sleep deprived, food deprived. But it was from then on in, I just... I decided that unless I physically broke to the point where I couldn't go on or they physically removed me from the course, that I was going to get to the end of it and then just see how the chips fell. Number 60, Nick Caldwell. But if you're there because you want to fight war at the tip of the spear and you want to be thrown into the hardest, most arduous tasks possible, then you're in the unit for the right reasons. Number 68, Harry Moffat. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. And Christmas on the Line, Volume 2. We're on 24-7, particularly as team leaders, you're either sleeping, planning, or on the job. And join us on Tuesday week, June 23rd, for Harry Moffat's return to the show. The leader is there to hold the light in the dark, to show the way forward. Subscribe to this podcast in your app of choice for all future Special Forces episodes. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, US Radio, by The Externals. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. Tune into the big US radio, eh? Hey,